This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Now and Not Yet. Pressing in when you're waiting, wanting, and restless for more. Written and narrated by best-selling author Ruth Cho Simons and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to The Cartographers, where we map the changing cultural landscape for 21st century Christians. Expect thoughtful conversations with hosts Bryce Hales and Ashley Hales, a pastor and a PhD, along with our guests to help you navigate a changing cultural landscape. All right. I get the pleasure of interviewing Douglas McKelvey. He is the author and part of the inventor, I suppose, behind um, something that's really t- taken a lot of the Christian world by storm, Every Moment Holy. It's a collection of liturgies and prayers, and there's two volumes out at the moment. So it's a pleasure to talk about liturgy and formation here with Doug today. Thanks for being here. Yeah. Thank you, Ashley. I'm so happy to have the chance to talk. Yes. So tell us a little bit about, you know, this project began several years ago, five, six, seven years ago, right? Um, you're very, as far as the publication of the first volume, tell us a little bit about the process. How did you see the need for a collection of personal liturgies to be able to take that idea of maybe corporate worship and bring it into the everyday? Yeah, that's a, that's a good starting place. Um, it was, I believe, in 2015, um, I was working on a novel or struggling to work on a novel, struggling to make progress. Um, I, I tend to have seasons of time when I'm really efficient and, and um, you know, really get a lot of writing done, and then other seasons when it is just a struggle. Um, and you know, part of that is external things. Part of it is just that at times I can be really undisciplined. And so I would sit down in the morning with the best of intentions to make progress on this novel. And, you know, then lunchtime would roll around and I would realize I had spent my time checking emails and reading interesting articles and, you know, had had actually not ever gotten myself into that writing zone and and made any progress. So after a a couple weeks of of really struggling, I just thought I need a prayer that would serve to help focus me when I sit down to write, when I sit down to, you know, to try to steward um, this vocation that, that I've been entrusted with. And so I thought, well, I'll, I'll just write it as a liturgy um, because, uh, you know, to, to have a structure imposed on something kind of just sparks something in, in whatever poet, poet is latent in me. Um, and so I wrote a liturgy for fiction writers. I, I took a few hours and, and wrote that. But I wrote it just thinking this was something for me that, that I would use to, to help focus myself, um, to reorient me to who I am in relation to my creator, 
and in relation to the stewardship of, of my craft and in relation to the people that I ultimately hope to serve by, by what I would be writing. So there was a conference coming up that um, I was going to do a session with uh, Andrew Peterson, the author and singer-songwriter. Um, and it was a session about stories. So I, I just kind of, when I finished writing that prayer, I thought, oh, this liturgy for fiction writers might be a, an interesting way for us to end the session. So I sent that to Andrew just to get his thoughts on it. And he responded really quickly and said, I love this, but I wish I had a liturgy for beekeeping and, you know, a liturgy for, he listed a couple other things that are, that are part of his life. And it was in that moment, just within a few seconds of reading the, the text that he sent back, that this idea just expanded in my head. And I realized, yeah. I, I wrote this thinking this is just, in a way, kind of a novelty thing, but something that, that would truly be helpful to me. But there's actually something in this that could be of service to the body of Christ. Um, and it harkens back to an idea that I was introduced to um, when I was in my mid-20s and first moved to Nashville and started uh, working with um, artist and producer and author Charlie Peacock. Um, that he he talked a lot about Coram Deo, this idea of all of life lived under the gaze of God and there being no division between the sacred and the secular parts of our lives. But, you know, the, the details of our lives matter to God and every moment is inhabited by his presence and, and that, you know, God is active in and through all of the circumstances of our lives. Um, if we you know, surrender ourselves to that process. So I immediately kind of connected those ideas to, to what this book, Every Moment Holy, might be. And I think that same day, I think I came up with the title and wrote up a, a, a pitch um, to take to Rabbit Room Press to, you know, to see if they would be interested in this kind of book. And And yeah, so from the very beginning, the whole idea was was almost there all at once of, you know, even of what the artwork might look like. I, I had pulled some old woodcut, um, kind of, uh, Chris, you know, artwork from, from hundreds of years ago in, um, within the, the church, you know, art that the church had used and, and high with, you know, infused with symbolism and just uh, these rich traditions and, um, you know, so even what the art looks like that, that that the illustrator Ned Bustard has has done for every moment holy, his vision you know just comes so directly out of that ancient rooted Christian tradition of of art and symbolism. So, yes, Ned's been on the podcast too, so it's been fun to talk of yeah to talk to both of you, you know, and you know as we think about these sort of liturgies and their own kind of journey that began with you and then in these communities with Charlie Peacock, with Andrew Peterson, um, through the rabbit room, help us um, think about this, this maybe, I don't know if it's a spectrum or I don't know what the best metaphor is, but help us think about the relationship between kind of the individual and kind of a diary of private prayer sort of thing 
um, that your book could serve. And, you know, when you think about liturgy, often you think about the corporate worship service. Um, so help us understand how you're thinking about every moment holy. Is this an individual pursuit? Is it a small group pursuit? Um, we've used, we just a few weeks ago used your liturgy for the first hearth fire. Um, when we had some folks over from, you know, the lighting the first hearth fire of the season and when we had some folks over for dinner. And so there's, there's kind of a communal informal element, but I just am curious to, to think about even taking a step back, how you see every moment holy fitting into this spectrum between an individual and kind of the, a corporate or ecclesiastical understanding of liturgy. Sure. The idea with every moment holy was never that we would try to replace the great liturgical prayers of the church, those resources like the Book of Common Prayer that are that are already there and, and available to everyone. You know, people have said, why don't you write one for a baptism or, you know, for communion? And and my response has always been the the body of Christ really has those things covered very well. <laughs> you know, <laughs> They're they pretty are, good for lots of centuries. Yeah. yeah. Um, what I wanted to do with Every Moment Holy was – you know, to create prayers. Um, and, you know, s- some of them are liturgical in form in that there are parts for a, a leader and then for the people. And others, you know, are much more suited to just an individual, um, you know, privately praying through those prayers. But it was it was always about filling in those gaps. And, you um, you know, for for me, part of part of the challenge of writing some of these prayers, um, it was it was really an exercise in saying, okay, theoretically, I would say I subscribe wholeheartedly to the theological belief, and I believe Scripture backs it up that um, that every part of our lives is to be part of our our worship that our worship is lived out in every facet of our lives. It's not just about singing songs of praise to God, though that is a, a beautiful part of, of what it means to live a life of worship. But it also has to do with um, how we serve in even the mundane things and just, you know, the the disposition of our hearts as we're going about our daily lives and the way we treat um, the people who are close to us and the way we treat strangers. And so it was writing a lot of those prayers was me saying, okay, if I really believe that the act of changing a diaper is a holy moment, that God is present how do I how do I flesh that out? What are the how do those dots get connected? How does the the act of, of changing a child's or a grandchild's diaper fit in this movement of the kingdom of God, you know, and moving toward the eternity that's in front of us and the the full realization of the new creation and um you know, and 
everything that that's part of our great hope. You know, if what I believe about scripture is true, then somehow those two things have to be connected directly. It's not just an abstract thing. So, you know, in the context of a prayer that someone might pray um, before or while they're changing their child's diaper, how do we reframe that moment in a way that actually is true and consistent with Scripture and that pulls our hearts, that that redirects our hearts toward that great eternal hope and toward our, our Creator and toward an awareness that He is present even in that moment? Um, that That's um, what I was setting out to do with Every Moment Holy was to help people begin to reframe those everyday moments of their lives in light of eternity and in light of the truth of scripture and um to unto the end that you know my hope was that individuals families small groups um would be able to find certain prayers in these books that would naturally fit into the existing rhythms of their lives. Um, and that in that sense, because these would become prayers that they would repeatedly go to, it would become part, it, it would form this liturgical rhythm in their lives. So that's why we use the term liturgies because it's it's more about how we hoped people would use them. Mm-hmm. More of a kind of rhythm-keeping, time-keeping reminder, sort of. Yes, yeah. that it, yeah. that it would that it would become this uh, this rhythm of being reminded again and again that God is present in this moment, that He is at work in me, around me, through me, as I yield myself to Him. And that even a moment that feels, you know, mundane or in in which my n- normal response would be to be irritated by what's happening, can I reframe that into what is a truer perspective and a more biblical perspective that that you know God will use even this circumstance to conform my heart into a greater likeness to the heart of Christ, um, which isn't always comfortable. It's not always, you know, fun, but it is ultimately what is for our greatest good. Yeah. You know, I, and I do, I was just thinking, I do love that there are some prints to purchase as well, because I don't think when my children were little, you know, that I would have been like, okay, I need to get every moment holy out and, and meditate on this while I'm trying to hold down a Wrigley you know, child and change the diaper. And I have two toddlers running around. So, you know, um, but I do, so you could put it above the changing table too. You know, there, there are ways that we can access some of this, I think in, in our hurried and harried uh, moments. So, um, you know, I would love to hear a little bit more too about your process, which of, you know, which liturgies have been particularly hard. And I'm thinking, you know, in your second volume, there's a, losses that you personally, like a, um, there's a liturgy for a miscarriage. And I know uh, one of my friends was just mentioning how she had 
given that to a family member um, as a way to comfort her. But obviously, you being a man, you don't have kind of that firsthand experience of some of those losses or um, I don't know if you keep bees, you know. So how have you been able to kind of imaginatively uh, enter into some of these spaces as you've written these liturgies? What does that process look like for you? I would probably have to give a number of different answers, um, you know, based on the variety of liturgies. Um, some of them, I think, just because of the way my brain works, um, you know, as a writer, that you know, I've spent my whole life daydreaming and imagining things other than as they are, and you know, creating worlds and characters, and so so there is this. I, I guess you could call it an empathetic muscle <laughs> of kind of putting, trying to put myself, you know, in, in someone else's um, emotional space of, of what they might be feeling. And, um, you know, and of being able to, with something like beekeeping, which I, I've never done beekeeping. Um, but, you know, it's not, it's not that hard a leap to find the connections. Um, I mean, to under I can understand what I would love about beekeeping if I did it, and so you know to begin to connect some of those dots. But certainly, there were other ones that um, that I approached with much fear and trembling, just feeling like I had no business writing about these things when I had not experienced them. Now, my wife and I did um, have two miscarriages um, after our third daughter was born. Um, so, you know, that one I did, I, I had some experience with, but in volume two, which centers on prayers for those who are grieving a loss, also for, for those who are um, dying, um, and those who are are caretakers um, for those who are who are sick or dying, um, there were a number of topics that I just knew that that without other people weighing in, um, those were not going to land in a place that was going to be helpful to people who were having to walk those very difficult roads. Um, so, for instance, a liturgy for the loss of a child. Um, you know, I've, I've walked through those miscarriages with my wife, but we never had to experience what it would mean to lose a five-year-old or a seven-year-old. So I knew that, that there were going to have to be other voices that, that weighed in on those prayers. And there were people who had experienced those things either very recently or, you know, a decade before, but who were willing to walk through that process with me, either to, you know, to, to go to that hard place of really opening back up those emotions that they had lived through previously, or giving me a window in real time to what they were going through week to week. And, you know, those people were just precious um, and and so courageous to to do that. And they did it because they understood that there will be lots of other people walking these difficult roads after them um, and that their insights could help to shape these prayers into something that really would articulate 
the heart of a parent who's who's lost a, a child or the the heart of someone who has has lost someone in their family or a close friend to suicide um you know there are just a lot of a lot of difficult topics that that I knew that they wouldn't go into the finished pile uh, in terms of the the manuscript as we were putting it together until those people had completely signed off on them. And so, yeah, it was, I couldn't have done it without the community that kind of circled around. And it was really a community of the grieving and the broken, but who were, you know, who wanted to offer even their own tears um, and their own, you know, very, well, their own grief, uh, their own sorrow, and the in in a way that would that would serve others, um, yeah. So, and they were they were honest with me. They would tell me, you know, this part of this prayer, um, you've really gotten that wrong. I think people are going to take it wrong, and it's actually going to be more hurtful, and <laughs> you need to get rid of that. And then there's this other thing that my family experienced, you know, when, when my little brother died and, um, you haven't touched on that at all, you know? So it, it was just, um, yeah, it really became a, a work of community in that way. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At BOW, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So, whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. You know, as you've written these two volumes, um, are you, I'd love to know, do you, do you feel surprised at, at the reception? Um, and then I'd also love to hear um, the ways in which you feel like you've changed in the writing of these liturgies over the last several years. Um, if you feel like you have a, a renewed in, you know, intimacy with, with God, um, in just as this vocational part of your call. So to answer your first question, I, I didn't have any idea what the reach of it would be. I'm part of, um, you know, this, this loose community of, um, it's not just of artists, but it's called it's called the Rabbit Room. It's something that Andrew Peterson and his brother started maybe fifteen years ago, um, and there are a few thousand people who, to one degree or another, are, are kind of involved with that community. And 
So as I wrote the book, that was really my target audience as I wrote the first book. I was pretty sure they would appreciate it. And actually at some of the rabbit room conferences, which are called Hutchmoots that happen once a year, uh, as we were in the process of, of working on the book, we utilized a few of the, the prayers that I had already written in the context of the conference. And, you know, that, that affirmed to me, the feedback we got affirmed that, okay, yeah, this is, this is in the pocket for, for this group of people. They're going to like it beyond that. I wasn't certain. Um, so yeah, the way it, it took off very quickly, um, and just was spreading mostly by word of mouth and, um, and by people, people who would get a copy and then it, it seemed like the most common pattern was then they would go buy six copies to give to other people. Um, and it just you know, has continued to spread that way. So yes, the, the answer to your first question is that I, I had no idea that it would um, resonate as much as it has um, across so many different um, parts of the body of Christ and different denominations and, and traditions uh, within Christianity. Um, your second question was whether I had been changed in the, in the process of writing these. And yes, uh, the, the, the short answer would be yes. Um, in different ways with the, the two books that I've written so far, um, volume one took about a year to write and it was a really hard year. It was, it was just a time when it felt like the wheels just fell off of, of my life. I mean, there was, there was no part of my life that felt like, um, that felt like a haven. Um, and there was just so much going on, so much transition. Um, you know, I mean, there were some things that, that were good, like, you know, sending a, a kid off to college and those kind of things. But there was just a, there was a, a real chaos <laughs> to that year. Um, and by the time I reached the end of the process of writing, um, in some ways I just felt numb. I just, I was emotionally numb. I had nothing left. It was actually a full year after that before I tried to write something again to start working on another prayer because I just, you know, I, I needed, I needed the time to, to recover somehow. But part of, of what it of, of what was happening inside me through that process of, of trying to write a, a book like that during such a difficult year was that each time I would sit down to write, it would force me to my knees because there was all this stuff going on, all these stresses. And, um, you know, I mean, it was a, it was a financially difficult time because I'm, you know, sort of living on credit to, to write this book, but having no idea, you know, if, 
if it's ever going to generate enough sales to make up for that. And, um, but it, it would force me to my knees because I just didn't see how I could get anything done on a given day. Um, you know, in, in that kind of context. And so my, my prayers were probably mostly desperate pleadings where it was, it was just along the lines of God, if, if there's anything here you want to use, if this is, you know, I think I should be investing my time in trying to write this book. Um, but if, if this is something that you are, are moving me toward, if this is one of those good works you've prepared in advance for me to do, then you have to show up and you have to meet me in the midst of this and make of it more than what I'm bringing to the table. Cause I've got, I've got nothing. So it was, it was an awareness of my own poverty and kind of the brokenness of the place that I felt like I was in. Um, and I just, you know, I just knew I was the kid showing up with his basket of a few little fishes and some loaves. And that unless, unless it was God's good pleasure to take that and bless it and break it and multiply it and distribute it in whatever way he wanted, then it was just going to be an empty exercise because, I just knew that I couldn't, I mean, I had a vision for what I hoped this book could be, but I knew I wasn't um, up to the task of pulling it off and especially not, you know, not with all the external factors going on at that time. Um, so, you know, to live for the better part of a year in that kind of sustained posture of just knowing that that God has to somehow show up somewhere in this process, whether I see that or not, he still has to be at work and do that if it's going to, if it's going to get finished and be anything. Um, and I, you know, it, it's not that I would want to go through a season like that, but I can see in hindsight, um, some of the work that that did on my own heart just to, you know, to kind of have to, um, to be in a place of, of trust and knowing that I'm, that I'm incapable and that if God wants to do something here, then, then that will be, you know, his work. Yes. Um, and I wonder if that kind of prepared the way for volume two. I think, I think it probably did because volume two, as I mentioned before, I, I, I did approach with a lot more fear and trembling, knowing that some of that subject matter, I just, you know, I, I, I didn't have the authority of experience, um, to speak to some of those things. So yeah. And volume two ended up taking two years to write, um, Initially, the idea was that it was just going to be a shorter book because it was going to be topically focused. So we had thought uh, when I first pitched the idea to my publisher, we agreed that maybe 30 or 35 prayers, something you know, about a, a third the length of volume one um, would work. But you know, the, the more I worked on it, the more obvious it became that you know, there were just so many facets of, of grief um, and of, you know, navigating the process of our own dying, 
which each of us have to do at some point in our lives and um and kind of seeking in that context to reclaim um some of of what the church used to be much better at which was i think um shepherding people through their deaths and not just from the time that they get the prognosis that they have you know three to five months to live but across their entire lives um that you know churches pastors used used to see that as much more of a weekly part of the you know their their ministry to their congregations was preparing them um you know for 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 death um but not just well and 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 i think there was much more of a of an understanding that people had that the way i walk through my own dying is um a last gift that i can give to the body of christ around me that i can bear witness by the way i i navigate this with trust and you know clinging to the hope of the gospel um that that is something i can offer and that that you know the desire to reach our end in that way with even that being a gift to the to the church around us um was something that was being cultivated throughout someone's life um and and we've just become a culture not just within the church but just a culture in general that is so insulated from um from those who are dying from you know we we don't tend to um to have our grandparents you know dying in the room next to us when we're kids anymore um so that just the reality of of death as a part of um you know it's much easier for us to ignore it now and then and then just to be completely thrown when we when we do reach that point in our lives yeah so part of our hope uh with volume two was that it um not only would it serve people who are walking through these very difficult parts of their lives through the valley of the shadow of death um and the grief of of losing someone but that that it would also maybe serve to help to begin to open more of that conversation and and dialogue um you know within the within the church that that at least within a lot of our western culture countries has been lost over the decades yeah it can kind of be an an education in learning yeah how to how to begin to reckon with even the small deaths of our daily lives as well so that that becomes formative right for for end of life yeah yeah it does yeah and i think i think you're right that there is a there is a very real correlation there that it's part of the same process right that that when we first bow our knees um to christ and and say to god you know your will be done um 
that we begin that process of, of dying to self and that our actual physical deaths um, are the final fulfillment of that where it's like all the remaining things that we're clinging to all the dreams and, and all the, you know, the material things that we hoped to acquire. Um, we lay those down at that point, either um, willingly or, you know, kicking and screaming, but we're going to lay those down. And so, um, which, you know, I don't want to, say all of this and have anyone hear me saying that death is not an enemy or that death is not unnatural because, you know, I believe that scripture clearly indicates those things. You know, I, I don't subscribe to the circle of life <laughs> sort of philosophy. Um, but, um, you know, that in the context of, of living in this world that is on its way toward the new creation and the ultimate redemption of all things and the resurrection of our physical bodies in their, you know, perfected form, um, that along the way toward that, we do face our physical death. Um, and and for a Christian, you know, it, it, it should be viewed in the context of, of being a final step in that process of dying to self, to all of our own hopes and dreams for the way our lives would play out and saying, okay, into your hands, I commend my spirit. And, you know, I, I look for the resurrection of, of this physical body of mine and, yeah. So, so I think there's just a lot there that as I worked on that book and, and did a lot of, of reading, a lot of valuable books that, that other believers had written, you know, over either recently or long ago um, on those subjects were just very illuminating and, and helped me to kind of begin to piece together that, yeah, there was a more robust theology of dying that um that the church used to have and and we've lost that and it's probably time that we begin to to reclaim that so yes yes well i would love to hear just briefly are there you know do you have a set of you know historic prayer books or you know things that you tend to turn to or writers that you tend to turn to as you have you know what are kind of your inspirational fodder well, the Book of Common Prayer has been meaningful to me since I initially encountered it, which would have been when I was in college. Um, I grew up in churches that placed a lot of value on spontaneity and where we would have looked very suspiciously um, you know, at anything that was a pre-written prayer because, you know, how could how could the Holy Spirit be involved in that? Right. Um, for some reason, we didn't make the connection to say um, that all of our songs should be spontaneous in worship <laughs> because how could the Holy Spirit be involved <laughs> in something point. that someone yeah, painstakingly yeah. crafted <laughs> for that? It's um, a good point. But um, yeah, but when I first encountered the book of common prayer, when I was in college, 
there was something that was so rooted about it um, where I felt like I could just trust it. Cause I was in a place that by that point where um, I knew that I didn't have a, like a coherent scriptural framework that had just never been given to me in the, in the places that I grew up. Um, I mean, th- there were bits and pieces, but you know, nothing that no, was no framework. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No real framework. And I, I recognized I didn't have that. And I was in circles where there was a lot of, of error, a lot of wackiness. And I could, I could usually recognize oh, what that person just said. I don't think that's right, but I don't really know what is right. <laughs> so so when I encountered the Book of Common Prayer at that time in my life, it was so um, – I instinctively felt like I could trust it um, because there, there was so much more depth and rootedness and theological richness to it. But it was also something that had been affirmed by generations within the church. Right, it wasn't just someone right now for the first time has this new revelation saying this thing. It was like, no, this is this is an unpacking of scriptural truth, um, and for hundreds of years, people, gener- successive generations of of people within the body of Christ have been affirming it and saying, yes, this does align with scriptural truth. This is an expression of of what we believe. So that that was very formational, and for me as well, the fact that there was um, there was an aesthetic beauty to it, just the that there was this you know un- underlying um, you know maybe to call it poetry goes too far, but there was a poetic sensibility to it, to the rhythm and the the feel of the words as well as to the you know as well as the concern that it be true to um, to scripture. So, yeah. So all of those together, just, it it just resonated with me. And, um, you know, some of those phrases in the book of common prayer that I encountered then stuck with me and, you know, and served over the years to, to shape parts of my theology, um, in, in, in ways that prior to encountering that I had never thought of it. Um, there, are prayers of the early Celtic Christians that, you know, they had quite a tradition of writing prayers for things like, um, you know, covering the the coals on the hearth at night or milking the cow um, or, you know, just a, a, a prayer for, for early in the morning when you wake up um, that, they seem to have had this this sense of walking through their days, um, cultivating an awareness through the the everyday activities, the the mundane kinds of things, and and um, a lot of beautiful prayers that they they had for you know contemplating your favorite tree that you like to sit under and you know and pray or read or, or whatever and. Um, but you know, a prayer about that and how it's um, using the tree as a kind of an allegorical or 
or you know poetic metaphor for um, things related to the spiritual life. And um, so, you know, with with what we've done with every moment holy, we didn't see it as oh here's a new thing we're creating. It was like, hey, here's a rich part of Christian tradition that we've kind of forgotten about over the last several hundred years, um, you know, of having prayers for for everyday moments. Let's, you know, let's see if we can reawaken that, and if if people today find it as valuable as as the early Celtic Christians did back in the the five hundreds through whenever I don't, I don't know for how many hundred years they were they were actively doing that yeah saying those prayers about their trees i love it um you know so did you so uh, you know as we conclude what's next for you and did you ever get back to that novel yes i did get back to the novel um my publisher has it now so i'm waiting for them to to read it and and give me notes on it so i'm i'm doing some script writing work um, for an animated series that's in the works right now. Um, and I've started working on on more prayers just within the last um, month or so. I, I started getting serious about that again for um, for another every moment holy book. so so yeah are you you're, you're, are you stuck in the the lane of prayer liturgies forever? <laughs> <laughs> well, I um, yeah, at this point, I expect I'll, you know, continue to do that for for quite a while, um, as long as people seem to to continue to find them useful. Um, but I do have I I do love writing fiction, um, and I have a whole lot more books that I have not finished. A lot of stories, manuscripts that I, a whole lot more that I have not finished over the years than that I have finished. So I probably have a half dozen novels that are somewhere in process that, you know, I would, I would love to land those at some point as well. So. Yes. Part of your, your good work of death to self is yeah. Resurrecting old stories maybe and plotting through them. Yeah. <laughs> <Hello>. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Doug, for being with us, for your good work, for listening, and yeah, that the own your own kind of spirit of of reception and brokenness that is required to to give this gift to others. So, thanks. Thank you, Ashley. The Cartographers is hosted by Bryce Hales and Ashley Hales. It's edited by Nathan Michelle. The Cartographers is a production of Willowbray Institute. Find out more at willowbray.org.